Well, God is good to us, um, even giving us snow for our winter festival today. Isn't that good? It was bare has been mentioned. Uh, if you're interested in where the ministry center is, you're not familiar with that, two miles down the road that way, and then you'll see a big uh, lodge and there, a sign that says Adirondack Bible Chapel Ministry Center. It's there. Just park in any of the parking lots that you find. Um, and if you get stuck, Ed will get a tractor or his little uh, gator and try to pull you out. Evidently, he's had fun plowing uh, the lake. Uh, and I don't think, if you snowshoe, I don't think the church has nothing against snowshoers. Uh, ben is just, uh, he's not a snowshoer, so um, bring your snowshoes. Yeah. Um, well, I know this week has been busy and alarming for all of us, watching the news and seeing those things which are going on around us uh, with uh, the reality of war uh, that is going on in Europe and in Ukraine. Uh, and I know that I've, I've received, and I think many of you probably have received, many emails from missionaries and, and other people in, in that area that are still, uh, still in the country and still serving in what capacity uh, that they can. Received one update from the Master's Academy International stating that their missionaries decided to stay in country uh, to shepherd their flock during this difficult time. Uh, and the latest update was... Um, reminding us or asking us to pray for their provision. Uh, so they have bomb shelters all throughout the city. Some of the churches have basements or parking garages are using as bomb shelters. They've been able to invite many neighbors into that and to, uh, with them as they've been holding services and praying and singing. And, um, uh, and provision is, uh, is running out. So uh, do pray for that. Uh, much to be praying about over there in the conflict. Pray for protection, the furtherance of the gospel, for courage uh, and encouragement during this time, and pray that evil will not prosper. And so I know you have been praying, and I just want to encourage you to continue to pray for uh, that, uh, that part of the world. Many other, the surrounding nations, even, um, uh, even uh, I forgot your name, Johnny, yeah. Even Johnny mentioned this morning people from his church have, have went and uh, got some refugees from the border in Romania uh, to take in. So it's a big impact, and uh, we know God is in control. We believe he's sovereign, and in the midst of this, let's pray that he uh, expands the kingdom of God greatly. Well, if you have your Bibles open in front of you in Hebrews chapter number 13, for those of you visiting with us this morning, we've been walking through a series of the book of Hebrews over this past year, and just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and trying to glean from it what the Lord would have his church, us to understand and be instructed by. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been in chapter number 13, dealing with community life together, and it is my intention to finish up our study of Hebrews next week. This week, I want to look at verses 17 through 19, and that is a how we respond to godly leadership. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll wrap all of this up. So you can be praying about that and praying for me and my family as we do some traveling this week for a funeral in Tennessee. Well, speaking of praying, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together. Thank you for the... Songs that have been sung to stir our hearts, the prayers that have been prayed to remind us that we are dependent upon you, and thank you for your word to tell us that that is no vain hope. Lord, you are near us, 
and you are with us. And Lord, you hear the cry of your people. So we just praise you for that. Pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Help me uh, to share your word clearly. And Lord, help us all to, uh, to be encouraged and grow and challenged by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been my personal conviction and desire uh, over the years to preach the word of God as, as it has been given to us. And I think expository preaching, which sounds like a communicable disease, doesn't it? You know, you've, whatever that is, I don't want. Uh, but I think expository preaching is one of the best means and, and really the truest means to do that. And by expository, it just means that we, we try to preach in a way which brings out of the passage what God is saying to his people. Consider the context and the content and all of those things like that. And to expose the word of God to God's people. Well, it has been the practice of this church and, and my own practice to not only look at the Word of God this way corporately uh, through different sections and topics and chapters, but also through entire books of the Bible. And I say that for two reasons. One reason, we're almost through the book of Hebrews. And, uh, and you can be praying for me, as I settle on direction for where we need to go next. A few different thoughts in my mind and Lord willing, hopefully this week I can get settled somewhere. So pray for me uh, as, we, uh, as we see where we will go next. And the second reason, I want to say on the outset, admittedly, our text today seems a bit self-serving. Uh, and I just want you to know that um, for those of you who are uh, normally here week after week, it would seem very odd if I just went to verse number 20 uh, or had somebody else deal with 17 and through 19. And so I want us to glean from God's word, verses 17 through 19, uh, his will for us this morning. And with that, let me just read these verses. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Uh, it is worth noting that we don't find ourselves in verse or chapter number 13 and the writer just all of a sudden uh, become concerned with the community life of the church. In fact, turning back with me to chapter number 10, we see this clearly manifested a word which is much needed in our culture and context today, especially uh, over the past two and a half years. Verse 23, he tells us of chapter 10, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Uh, he's speaking of Christ and his faithfulness to us, God the Father and his faithfulness to us, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this has been a timely message reminding us that the body of Christ is encouraged, commanded, it's a command here, to, to meet together for this mutual encouragement, this mutual edification and stirring one another to loving good works. It is remarkable as Mike was uh, 
sharing the song we sung this morning and the videos of the church gathering together in the middle of a war, bombing and all the other stuff going on, and they're singing and worshiping God because we are strengthened, especially in times of difficulty, by one another, by the local church God has given to us. And that is one of God's gracious gifts uh, to the body of Christ, that is, the gift of one another. Now, part of the problem you see found in chapter number 10 uh, in verse number 25 is that the church had, uh, had been splintering. People had been uh, abandoning the fellowship. They'd been walking away and not associating with the church any longer. Uh, and his concern is that others may walk away from the congregation, from the fellowship, and in walking away they may walk fully away from Christ himself. And so you see throughout the book of Hebrews a continual warning or continual warnings for the danger of walking away from the faith, walking away from Christ and apostatizing. And so his concern has been for the health and the life of the church. His concern has been for their, their life together and what does it mean and how they're to live it out. And just when we get to chapter number 13, it seems to focus on this a little more clearly, showing us... and. Chapter number 13, what fellowship and community, what the church is to look like. Now it is true that some suggest he may be speaking to several small house churches or maybe one church. It's, uh, people have a difference of opinions, but he is referring to the body of Christ or the local church uh, that he is writing to nonetheless. Now chapter 13 begins to show us some insight how we are to live together, doesn't he? First verse he says that we are to let brotherly love continue and and we're to respond to one another in love love in action loving caring meeting needs of one another you see that in verse number two and the strangers and those who are in prison and he goes on and then he reminds us that the church should guard its love and, and guard itself from those deceitful loves or those toxic loves that will destroy the body of christ and that is sexual immorality and the love of money and those things which are distorted. So instead of building up the church, it, it robs and takes away and causes damage. We're faced with that in our society. It's, it's, it's continually something that we confront. When we get to verse number 7, he's, he deals with the church and their relationship to the leaders in which God had given them in the past. Maybe the founders of the church or... For those who have died for their faith, we don't know exactly, but we know those people who had preached the word of God to them and exampled it in their lives. In verse number seven, he says, remember them and imitate their way of life. So one way, when you get to verse number 17, it isn't the beginning of how we respond to leadership. It really is the, the follow through of what he's been talking about all the way since verse number seven. We're to respond to the leaders God gives us by remembering them and those who have gone on already to be with him. And I would say as we come to look at verse number 13, we are to respond to Christ's ultimate leadership by going to him outside of the gate, by following him in obedience and, and pure and true doctrine that has been given to us. And then verse number 17, he tells us how to respond to the leaders who are now serving over the body of Christ whom God has given to the church. With that, look at verse number 17 with me. And I want to set three headings for you this morning as we try to navigate verse number 17 and verse number 18. 
And those headings are obey, consider, and pray. You see the first of that in verse number 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, if we're honest and we're at church, so it is a good place to be honest, is any place, that hits us the wrong way. Could we get a show of hands? No, don't do that. Well, it's because we've seen the nature of abuse and authority. It's been all over the TVs. We see it in every realm of society that has any hierarchical structure, any structure that authority is exercised has been abused. If it can be abused, it has been abused. It, it is even worse to see that kind of abuse from men who claim their abuse a justified right from God. To justify their abuse through the word of God who serve in pastoral roles and leaderships in the body of Christ or in the in evangelical ministry at large. Recent exposure in the world of this kind, which we've been fascinated with and we've been, um, we've been taken back by, has, has really, if we're honest, led us a little bit, left us a little bit jaded and somewhat skeptical and set against a passage like this when the first words we read, Obey your leaders. Not to mention God in his judgment, his divine judgment on those who have abused their leadership and their roles have brought to light and exposed such sins like these so that the world and that the church may fear not to fall into the same kind of trap. As beyond what I intend to do this morning uh, to give uh, examples because there's so many there's no need to. And I don't want to dwell on the abuse of authority. I just want to acknowledge on the outset of that, that it exists. It's true. It's there. And not to gloss over it and to think that it doesn't happen. There are hindrances to passages like this in our own minds and our own hearts because we've experienced that. Some have experienced that in the home. Some have experienced that in the church. Some of us have experienced that in society. We understand and we acknowledge abuse exists. But I also want to acknowledge, and I think we need to on the outset of this, that authority is established by God. And is it given to us for our good? Whether it be the home, or whether it be in the church, or whether it be in social structures, authority is given to us for human flourishing. And with that, he tells us, beginning of verse number 17, you're to obey your leaders. Now we need to ask the question, who do we need to obey? Now, there's different places in the Word of God where God deals with different kinds of leadership. Who is he referring to in our passage? And I've already said this in one sense. He's dealing with our leaders in the church. Now, we use different names for that in, in our modern day. The Bible gives us different titles for that. We talk about elders. We talk about pastors. And those are the two common names we use in our day. And I think those are, are both biblical and Agreeable to what the Bible calls them. Elders are simply means an old man, right? So it's not a very affectionate term. It's just simply someone who is aged. Um, it has come to mean in the context of the synagogue uh, that they would have elders over the church. It, would, it didn't necessarily mean because they were old, but because with their age come a level of wisdom and maturity to be able to guide and minister and care for others. They were leaders in the community and leaders in the synagogue. And I think you see the same example when it comes to elders in the church. Not necessarily by age, but it does 
speak to those who are in leadership based upon their spiritual maturity. Pastors or under-shepherds or um, whatever you want to refer to there, which is also a common term for us, is and speaks about what the leaders are supposed to do. They're to shepherd the sheep. They're to, to minister and care for the congregation. It's worth noting that two letters Paul gives to us referred to as um, pastoral epistles are not for pastors, but actually they're given to us for the church. Both First Timothy chapter number 3 and Titus remind us when it comes to the role of leadership in the congregation, leadership in the church, that these men, we believe God calls men to these roles, these men are qualified and show a level of maturity or character to fill that position. So it isn't just open to anyone. The Bible regulates who can and cannot be a pastor or an elder. So we might say, Uh, that God calls men to this role who display spiritual maturity. It's also worth noting that 1 Timothy chapter number 5 also gives us instruction on how we deal with elders who sin or those who have been accused of sin and how we're to uh, interact with that and deal with that. Those are uh, things you can read in your um, leisure time. Verse 17, he speaks of not only uh, leaders, we would say godly leaders who have been recognized by the congregation, gifted by God to this position, but he speaks about them in a plural fashion. Uh, So he's saying that there's more than one. Your leaders collectively are together. Now, it may be leaders of several different house churches that he's referring to, or it may be leaders uh, in a group like we have a a plurality of elders. There's four elders that serve here at ABC, and uh, two of us are here today. Ed's one, and I'm one. The other two are gone. Um, But nevertheless, they'll be back, we think. I don't know it's warm in Tennessee right now, but nevertheless... Um, we have a plurality of elders which minister together for the, for the sake of pastoring and shepherding the sheep. I know some churches don't operate in that fashion, but nevertheless, I think there's good biblical merit for that. And so you see this plurality of elders given. It is worth noting that here he's speaking of a local church context. And we've been blessed with many, many gifted ministries in our region, in this area, and all over America, parachurch ministries that come along and, and support us and encourage us and, and minister the word of God to us. And those are helpful and good. But here he's speaking more in a personal reality of your local church setting. Uh, those leaders that they are to obey and submit to are not the, the person they just see maybe once a year or, or watch on TV, but those who... Uh, are among them, those whom they know and have been identified and have preached and taught the word of God over a period of time. Some of those leaders being brought up within the congregation and some imported in from places like Tennessee and other places like that. I'm speaking about us. So the command is, as we understand the leaders that he's referring to, the command is to obey and submit to them. The word obey carries the notion of being persuaded. Uh, The word can be translated obey or to persuade or be persuaded of something. And here it may speak not just of obedience as as do this, but more the heart of the nature, the attitude of obedience. 
how they respond or how they think as they respond to their leaders and, and what the leaders are teaching them. It goes back to show us that obedience isn't just a mindless operation. Do this and then someone does that. But it is obedience that is informed and founded on the word of God. The leaders had preached to them the word of God. They had taught them. And the congregation is to receive that word by faith and put that word into practice in their own lives. And so here he's saying that to continue to do this. Listen to the message and the word which they have taught you and to live it out in your life. Be obedient to the message and to the leader or to the message the leaders have been giving you. The second word he uses is submission. That's another one of those challenging words, isn't it? Uh, The word behind this is used in Greek literature elsewhere to mean continual readiness or to comply with, to yield. This in particular word used here in verse number 17 is the only time it's used in the New Testament, but it carries the the same understanding as the other words translated as submission in our English Bible. So it's basically yield to their leadership. Don't be against them. Don't stand against them or fight against them. Be submissive to their leading, to the message and the direction in which they're leading. So we might ask ourselves, well, does that mean the pastor has ultimate authority? Does that mean the pastors of the church or the elders of the church can just bind and force people to follow whatever demand they want? How would you answer that? It's because we're Americans. No, no, we don't do that. Well, the answer is no. And I think that's one of the struggles we've seen in church history during the Reformation. Where they were wondering, or, or at least the Pope had, had, had claimed, the Catholic Church had claimed that the, the, the papacy, the Pope had ultimate authority in his office as Pope. And when he sat down in his chair and he made a statement, it was, it was binding. He had to be in the chair when he made it. But when he was in the chair and he made the statement, it was, it was enforced. It was binding upon the people. This led to the reformers to to come to the right conclusion that the minister, the pastors, the elders that serve here, their authority is only derived from the word of God. It's not inherent in themselves. And so just because you bring someone on as a pastor uh, does not mean that that the moment they're called pastor means they they have uh, unlimited authority. The authority that is, is given to them or the authority that they received has come from a different source. And so you see the understanding as one reformer asserts that Christ is a king and his scepter is his word. This is how he rules his church. So as the pastor teaches and preaches and leads, as the elders minister and counsel, they counsel from the word of God. The authority is God's word. And the ministers are just vessels which communicate that and give that to the people. The moment they step outside of that or the moment they stand against that or in rebellion against God's word, they are not to be followed. They are not to be submitted to because the authority is not the minister themselves, but the word in which the ministers are to minister with. There's a lot of ministry in that statement. But I think Matthew Henry helps us. I quote, Christians must submit to be instructed by their ministers and not think themselves too wise, too good, too great, to learn from them. And when they find that ministerial instructions are agreeable to written word, they must obey them. They, speaking of the leaders, have no authority to lord it over people, but to lead them in the ways of God and informing 
them and instructing them, explaining the word of God to them and applying it to their several cases. Basically, he is saying what we've been saying. They take the word of God, they minister it, applying it to people's life. This is what God's word says. And so he's telling the church to obey them, submit to them. Even when it comes to the direction and leadership in the church, God has gifted the church in that local area with those elders and leaders. And, and that direction, as long as it is in fulfillment with God's command to the local church and mandate to the body of Christ, uh, then we are to follow. But secondly, I want you to consider, first he says, let us obey them, submit to them. Secondly, I want you to consider, notice the second part of the verse. For they are to keep watch over your souls as these who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It seems to me that he is trying to build goodwill between the congregation and their shepherds or their leaders. It very well may be that they have been tempted to, to listen to other people who are leading them astray. You see that earlier in and the text of not being carried away with eating and all this other stuff that false teachers come in and bring. And, and so there may be some tension going on there between the leaders who are calling them back to faithfulness of Christ and, and the congregation. But nevertheless, he is trying to get them to understand the heart and nature of what it is the leader is to do. Giving them a glimpse of this, he reminds them that their job is to, to minister to to care for you, to minister and care for you. Any grandeur of self-promotion, any attempt to uh, appease their own ego, any idea of their own greatness is to be put to death immediately when it arises. In fact, what you find in Mark's gospel, Jesus' words to his disciples who, uh, I don't know when's the last time you read Mark's gospel, I would encourage you to do that soon, but man, these guys, I mean, they're thick-headed, just like the rest of us. Amen? Just like the rest of us. <laughs> and here they've been, they've been shown some amazing miracles that is unfathomable. What do they do when they converse with themselves? Who's going to be the greatest? That's what they do. They're, they're worried about their own greatness and their own position. And, and it's just amazing. Mount Transfiguration, they come down instead of saying, did you see how Jesus looked? Did you see the other guys? Wasn't that amazing? We're still alive. What do they do? They come back down talking about, I'm, I'm going to get the right side. You get the left side. We'll be great. This will be a good thing. Right? But Jesus reminds them that to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be a servant. I want to say that that's a word to every one of us. I don't remember where I read it or who I heard it from, but we can all be servants. We can all be servants. He is calling us all to serve one another. But it is not only important for all of us, but it is chiefly important for any who would aspire to the office of pastor or, or elder. The idea here he is speaking about those who keep watch or those who lose sleep over. And it, and it comes from two visual, uh, two visual examples in the Bible. One of the watchman on a wall. 
in the middle of the night as the town would be sleeping and they would be in their beds and in the safety of their own houses. It was the watchman who would post himself on the wall and who would wait and look and be alert to see if any harm would come their way, any robbers or evading army. And if someone would come their way, they would sound the alarm and wake them up and, and hopefully spare the people from disaster. One of the more prominent passages to this is Ezekiel 3 where God tells Ezekiel, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give them no warning or speak to warn them wicked from his wicked ways in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your own hands. But the other uh, the other example given to us is found in psalms 23 and many other places and that of of a shepherd the watchman cares for the congregation as a whole they they look for danger in the flock maybe it's false teaching or, or other things that divides the body of christ and and the shepherding role or the example is seen more of an intimate care a pastoral care between the elders and and the people that god has given to them to shepherd They are concerned, notice with me in verse number 17, keeping a watch, losing sleep over your souls. Not the immediate relief, necessarily, although that's nice, but of your eternal destiny. The reality that, as one preacher said as he got up to preach, he is a dying man preaching to dying men, knowing that eternity is on the line. And it isn't just in the moment of preaching, but they're to carry out this ministry with the reality that each of us will one day stand before God and give an account before him. Their desire is that you have a place to stand in Christ. It is their ministry and their desires at the heart of what they're called to do to that the people in which God has called them to minister to true godly leaders are are pleading and warning and praying all to the end that you would set your hope fully on Christ and that you would follow him and bear fruit with which will remain for eternity. And I would say that's the desire of the elders here at the church, just knowing the men as we gather together and pray weekly I'm talking about what's going on. Our desire is that that you would set your hope fully on Christ, that you would follow him fully, and that you would bear fruit for everlasting life. I think that's one of the joys he mentions in ministry is to be able to maybe one day, I don't know how it will be in the day of judgment, we we stand on the sideline rejoicing at, at seeing God reward the labor of your hands and the faith you've displayed. They are doing that for your care, for your your concern, but also not with the reality that one day you'll stand before God. Notice what he says. As those who will themselves have to give an account. They're not exempt. They will one day stand before Jesus Christ to give an account before him, how they've ministered. Ligon Duncan, a Presbyterian minister, told a story from a 19th century theologian one of his students had a meager assignment after seminary and he was very embarrassed by the size of his congregation and as he was ashamed or or embarrassed to kind of say it to anyone or or tell anyone the, the professor wisely 
wrote him a letter saying to him, I know that you're currently embarrassed for where you're at, thinking that your congregation is too small, but I assure you on the day of judgment, you'll think you've had enough, enough to give account for. It is a sober word to each of us. It is a, a, a tremendously sober word to me as I contemplate this. It's a tremendously sober word for the rest of the pastors and even deacons of the church here that one day we'll give an account for how we've ministered the word of God, how we shepherded and cared, or how we didn't care for those whom God has given to us. In one way, the, the, the elders and the leaders are exposed to the critics within the church, the critics within the world, but in another way, in a, in a much greater way, uh, we have to readjust our own thinking to be reminded that we're exposed before Christ, whom we'll have to stand and give an account. And that should be much more weightier of a matter uh, than what we see in the world and what we hear from the outsiders. And, you know, sometimes that gets upside down. Sometimes we think the greatest concern is what people think. I mean, if we're normal, if we're confessing our humanness, our concern, our motivation ought to be what Christ himself thinks. And we're to consider the word because of, the, because of the, the manner in which they carry it out, the weight which comes with it. And now he says something interesting at the end of verse number 17. We're to consider it, and because we consider it and the weight of it, we, we want them to be able to do this with joy. That's what he says at the end of verse number 17. He says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The book of Acts 7 records Stephen's sermon to his people. It was a scathing message. What was the theme? The theme was, you've always resisted the leaders God has given you. Trace it all the way down through Israel's history. They have always stood against or rebelled against. They are stiff-necked and hard-hearted against the leaders God had given them. And that was his message to them. But here he's saying to the church here, make sure that as they minister that they do this with joy. And I want to just say there's joy in the ministry. There's joy in serving Christ in any capacity. And there's joy. There's like a front row seat in the ministry. And sometimes there's joy in seeing people connect with the word of God. You see their faces and the light just comes on. It's like they get it. Not that, oh, I did a great job explaining it. They got it in spite of me sometimes. But there's joy in the reality that the word of God is, is working. The spirit of God is working. The word of connecting with their life. They get it. And, and there's joy in seeing people transformed. Meeting with them and seeing how the work of the Holy Spirit and their, and their sanctification is, is continually growing. I was thinking about a... Uh, a young lady at her previous church who we well, didn't have a piano player for years. Thank God for the giftedness this church has been given and, and Laura and just, you should tell her thank you sometimes uh, for her play and Mike too. We love him as well. <clears throat> you can thank him as well, but thank Laura more. <laughs> just kidding, brother. The young lady who was taking piano lessons uh, trying to freshen up on piano lessons so she could be good enough to play music, you know, be encouraged enough to play music in front of people. Oh, why well, we didn't know. What a joy it was to see her willing to, to grow in that way, to be able to serve the body of Christ. It was a joy for me. Not that I did anything, but just to see God working in her heart and her willingness to serve. 
There's joy in, in seeing someone who is bent against Christ coming to salvation and repenting of their sins and saying, I believe, uh, and, and putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I would say even, even with sorrow, there's joy as a minister walking for the last time with a casket of a saint who you know will be in the presence of or who is in the presence of their Savior. A sorrow, yes, but a joy as well. But no one denies the reality that there's joy in the ministry, but we, we don't deny also there's a great burden in the ministry as well. Heavy, cold shoulders, the lives of people who have been invested in and who have been mentored and, and counseled with walk away from the faith or become an enemy of Christ or become an enemy of that particular leader. And there's burdens that come with a call to serve, to be taken out of context, or as the old church used to say, to, to have the pastor for lunch or one of the, somebody else for lunch, and that was not bringing them over. And, and you know what I'm saying, that was dogging them out. To be ignored and to see faces weekly. Not with the joy of hearing the word of God, but with the, the, the sorrow of knowing that it's not getting in and they're just continually against it. I remember a man at one time, and Ed told me a story of someone clicking their watch while he was preaching the whole time. I hope you don't do that here. They said they were going to fix mine, but I go by that. So anyway... I remember a man one time, every time he looked back there, he turned his head and looked out the window. And the other one in the same row related to him looked down on the ground pretty much the whole sermon unless he said something crazy. Sometimes I would throw that in just to see if he would move. <laughs> That's a burden. Because it isn't that you desire to be heard. It is the reality that your desire is that they would hear the word of God and, and be changed and grow and encouraged by it. And yet we see the reality of rebellion and, and hardness. People content to be with their own, be at ease with their own obvious rebellion. Not even hidden sin, but obvious rebellion and act like nothing's going on. And, and yet, what do you do as a pastor or an elder? Her care group leader. It's a burden. And he's telling this congregation, and he says, with this, don't rob the pastor of his joy, the joy that Christ intended him to have. And so they are to live in a way of obedience and submission, and in so doing, fulfill his joy. Fulfill his joy. The apostle Paul writes to the Philippians, says, fulfill my joy. As he goes through, basically love one another and live out the gospel. Apostle John rejoices in the news that his children are walking in fellowship and obedience. And that is the joy of any pastor to see people following Christ and loving one another. And that's the joy he's referring to here. Not to be hard hearted and to continually be contentious and, and stubborn and, and demanding your own way. But submitting and obedience to fulfill their joy. But it's not only their joy. Because if you don't. Notice he says in verse number 17. It is not good for you. Because you cannot live in disobedience to God. And expect to experience the joy of Christ. And because you're at conflict. 
and you bring yourself in the discipline of the Lord. And so we're to consider the work, consider what kind it is. We are to obey them. But thirdly, I want us to notice verse number 18. He says, I want you to pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorable in all things. I think it's an appropriate way to to go to the next verse. Pray for us. I think it's appropriate because we could just stop there and I could just say at conclusion, church, pray for us. We should pray for one another. Amen? And pray for us. Because we're not infallible. Because we're human. We face temptations and trials and all the things that come in life that you face. And all of that difficulty and all of the, the, the burden and joy that we face in the ministry that God has given to us. Pray for us. Pray for us. I don't think if you asked Ed, Ed, do you want me to pray for you? I don't think he'll say, no, thanks, I'm good. <laughs> I know I won't say that. <laughs> pretty sure if you ask Leard and Greg I was speaking for them and they're not here so you can ask them later that they'll say no we're good because we need the prayers of the saints Paul the apostle who's seen stuff that he couldn't even tell us what he saw and you kind of be like come on Paul please a little bit clear up a little bit what you said anyway if you don't tell us what you saw and and he tells the church pray for me pray for me I think it's one of the great applications that we can do for those whom God puts over us and who serve in the church. And those of you who are visiting with us this morning in your local home church, pray for your leaders. Encourage them and pray that God would strengthen them and, and, and pray for them. If you don't have a home church, find a place where God can, can, can minister the word to you through faithful men. Submit to their teaching and pray for them. Pray for them. Let me just give you a few ways you can pray because I know some of you like numbers and notes and so maybe it'll be helpful for you. He says in verse number 18, pray for us. And he makes this statement that, uh, that we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. You know, the, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. God knows. We, we don't. There's speculation. He doesn't speak about himself throughout this whole lengthy chapter other than the fact of pray for us and we want to come back to you. That's it. But he does make a statement in verse number 18 that that he has a clear conscience. He's been faithful in whatever God's called him to do. There's nothing that that stands out that he needs to repent of or or correct. He's not acted inappropriately or wrongly towards the church here or wherever he's at, whether he's in jail or wherever he's at. Uh, We don't know. He has been faithful. And so if you're going to pray for your leaders, you're going to pray for your pastors, pray that they would be faithful. Pray that they'd be faithful. One, I would say, let's pray that they'd be faithful to Christ in their own spiritual walk. The temptation with the busyness of society and everything going on around us, it is easy to, to get to the place where all your concern is about what you do on Sunday morning, what I do on Sunday morning, and not about what I do week after week after week, day after day after day. Pray that they would be in the word and that they would be growing and cultivating in their own spiritual life godliness and godly character. Why is that important? Because the church will never rise above the spiritual condition of their leaders. So pray. 
Because in their success, in their faithfulness to Christ, in their own spiritual walk, it is an encouragement and it is a benefit to you and yours. Secondly, not only pray for their faithfulness to Christ, but also pray for their family, faithfulness to their family, faithfulness to their wives and their children. You and I have mournfully, everyone here in some way, have mournfully seen the impact of sexual immorality, not just in families, in the, in the, in the church, not just, uh, not just those outside of the church, and you see the train wreck that happens there, but the, the, the tragedy that happens within the body of Christ and within the clergy, within leaders, within the Christian community. It is damaging Let's pray that they would remain faithful to their wives and, and that they would, they would have strong marriages and families that, that bear up under the weight of, of ministry in whatever ways they do. Pray that they would guard their hearts from immorality of all kinds, whether it's pornography or, or temptation of any other sort. Pray for them. Pray that they would be faithful. Why? Because if they're not growing in their spiritual life, if they're not faithful in their families, and they will not be faithful in ministering to you. You see the impact. And you see the impact that if one can be taken down, the damage that it has on the whole, how much temptation is out there in our current society pulling away at us. Pray for their faithfulness to their families, to their wives, and to, their, to the ministry of their children. Thirdly, I'd say pray for their faithfulness in ministry. And be faithful to what God has given them to use. That's the word of God. Not gimmicks or any other things like that. That we would be faithful with the gospel. With the message of the gospel. But also in being faithful to that. But pray that God would allow them to prosper. That sounds funny. Doesn't it? Like you know, I've been watching one of those TV shows you're not supposed to be watching. Pray that he would allow them to bear fruit in the ministry. That the ministry of the word and the ministry in which they're engaged in would grow and would, would continue to prosper as it impacts because you're part of that reality. But also pray that they would be faithful in the ministry in seasons that it does prosper. Because how often it is the temptation when things are going great, Mike, to say, look at how, look how good things are going. Look at what I did. And the story of a, of a young man going to a big church and he was began pastoring there and things were going great. The church was going well and he was a little conceited, you know, as we tend to be. Until he went to study one day at church and when he went, he, he heard the janitor pray. And somewhere in that, God told him, no, that's where the prosperity is coming from. It's where the fruit of the ministry is coming from. It's despite your big head. It's the janitor's prayers. It is the faithful prayers of the saints as we minister together. But not only that we'd be faithful in seasons when it does prosper, that we would be faithful out of seasons when it appears not to. That's what Paul tells Timothy. Be faithful in season and out of season. So I want to encourage you this morning, uh, church, and charge you again to let brotherly love continue. Love in ways which is tangible, meeting real needs in our, our congregation and in the world. Stay with Jesus in the gospel. Obey and submit to the spiritual leaders God has given. 
desiring to see their joy full in Christ and pray for their continual faithfulness in the ministry as we fellowship together. Now, I know this may sound foreign and and kind of odd to some of you. I don't know where you are spiritually. But I would like to say this. The whole message of the Bible. Once you put it all together and boil it down to its, its, its bottom line message. is calling you to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He died for sins like you're held in right now. The very sins that you committed. The Bible says in Colossians, he died for sins like that on the cross. And and because he died for those kind of sins and because he rose again, he offers and extends forgiveness to any who would come to him by faith. That if they would turn from that which marks them, that which holds them in their sinful ways, that and they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they would receive forgiveness cleansing a new life and hope not only in this life but a hope in the life to come the bible and all of it brings us to this one place and that one that one long unending message that any minister ought to give and is giving is a message that if you would just believe and trust and turn that you too could be saved jesus come out of the wilderness after being tempted and after his baptism, saying, repent for the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's still the same message that we carry today, that the church is carrying, that the word of God is pointing to us. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's acceptance and forgiveness found in our humbleness before him at the cross. Maybe you need to start there. I'd love to talk to you after the service or... Maybe you're with someone who knows Christ and and you want to talk to them after the service about how you can be born again. I would encourage you, don't delay. The Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for this evening or this morning we gather together. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the godly examples throughout church history. Thank you for the godly examples in our own past of those who have taught us the word of God and showed us how to live this life. God, thank you for the ultimate example that we find in Christ. Father, help us all to to follow him and to the the world to minister your word and to, to live and bear the reproach of being in him. And Lord, I do pray for the elders here and and those who you will raise up in the future among us. And those whom you may even bring in from outside of us, Lord, that you would you would give us all a heart of what we've seen here in your word. Give us all a heart to minister and to be faithful in the ministry that you've given us to care, to shepherd, to watch, as you have called us, reminding us that one day we'll stand before you. And as a congregation, Lord, I pray and thankful for the joy that I've experienced, and I know it has experienced over these years and the other elders as well lord i just thank you for that joy pray that you'd continue to encourage this church and and help them as they live out your word and your will for us in jesus name amen